I'm Nick Terzo, and you are listening to The Radical. Today's guest wears many hats. Grammy winner, songwriter, producer, executive, and entrepreneur. His work on seminal records and with talents such as Yee, Dr. Dre, Lauryn Hill, 50 Cent, Wycliffe, and The Weeknd has led to many hits. Che Pope joins me for a deep dive on working with geniuses, learning all aspects of the music business at a young age, and his newest venture, Workshop, which is backed by investor Dan Gilbert. Coming up, my conversation with Che Pope. Hey, Che, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I feel like I know you, but I, I don't. And uh, <laughs> But I feel like for years I've known you through our mutual friend, Paula. So. Yeah. Shout out to Paula for putting hooking us up. Um, so I'll go all over the place here because I really want to understand. I think you're a, uh, what I always like to call people a multi-hyphenate. Um, you're a songwriter, you're a producer, um, you're an executive, you're an entrepreneur, um, yeah. you have your own podcast. I mean, so you have many hyphens. Um, so I want to try to figure out here how to build a kind of a narrative around you, your success and how you manage all those different um, facets of your life. <laughs> you know, so. manage, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't even, would even comment on that. Anyway, it's, all, it's, it's always, um, you know, it's always a challenge, but it's, it's a challenge that I accept. And it's a challenge that I, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for the life that I have, however, I stumbled into it, you know? So, I mean, you're a Virginia bred and raised kid, yeah? No, Boston, actually. Boston. Boston born and bred. I okay. went to college in Virginia. You did go to college there. Yeah. Uh, my mother actually lives in Virginia, coincidentally. But um, I'm, a, I'm a Boston guy, definitely. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, won't, we won't get into our Red Sox-Yankee issues then. So. <laughs> not not <laughs> right, Yankees, you know, we won't even have to, you know. We don't even have to, I don't even have to like throw, you know, throw sand on an open wound. <laughs> Precisely. Thank you. You're a gentleman. Yeah. Um, so did you play as a kid? I mean, were you encouraged? Was it a musical household? You know, it was a musical household and none of my parents play an instrument. Um, it was a musical household in the sense that they, you know, they liked music, you know, especially my aunt. I would say even, even though my dad, you know, there was music in my house. My aunt lived close by and my aunt was probably the one who played music all the time. So she, I feel like I really learned more about music from her than anyone else. Um, and she was single. She used to like play, you know, you'd come over and it was always music playing and always on the turntable. And I would always have to, you know, I'd hear something, I'd have to look at who it was and she would take the time to sit me down and tell me like, you know, what this, you know, what this artist was and who this artist was and so on and so forth. So um, very little music instruction. Um, I would say in third grade, you know, like most kids get involved in like uh, almost like kind of a band type situation. So that was like drums. And then later on, I took a little piano, but um, very little. And then I would say somewhere around 14 basketball took over my life. 
but something pivotal happened at 16. I was introduced to this hip hop record um, by KRS One. It was KRS One's first album, which is called Criminal Minded. And um, I went to a school, I went to a high school in an area called Brookline, um, Mass, which I went to Brookline High. And um, Brookline is known, it's the high school Conan O'Brien went to, it's the high, high school Mike Dukakis went to. So really, really great high school. It's almost like a college, how, how nice the high school was. But um, this kid, a friend of mine, introduced me to KRS-One. And at that point, I had been listening to a lot of music. I think the great thing about the diversity um, in Brookline led to, you know, you being awareness of all types of music. You know, I, I started learning a lot more about like rock and punk and, you know, all these other aspects and things that weren't necessarily coming out of my neighborhood you know, or things I would hear in my neighborhood. So I got introduced to the Beatles and all this other stuff. So really started to open in my mind. And then when I heard the Criminal Minded album, the first thing I heard was this Beatles melody that he had used, you know, in one of the songs. And then I heard this ACDC record in, in one and in being sampled. So I started kind of like, I guess you could say reverse engineering. it, And that was like, I think the first spark of me being interested in music creation. Right. And did you... Did that lead you to an instrument? What did that lead you to? That led me to the, you know, I my high school is right down the street from Berkeley School of Music. So there was an amazing music store called E.U. Wurlitzer, like um, nearby. So that led me to E.U. Wurlitzer. Wow. <laughs> and then E.U. Wurlitzer, uh, God bless them, because they never kicked me out. They would let me just hang in there for hours and like, you know, learn. And so I learned like almost every piece of gear. So by the time I was about, by the time I graduated high school, I pretty much knew like every piece of gear in E.U. Wurlitzer. So, um, which led me to, and, uh, I think the only thing I sort of recalled from my childhood or, or just for whatever reason, I, I had a knack of still understanding, had, having an understanding of music theory. So that led me as I started getting into music production, which really evolved at my, um, college because they had a studio that I could use. And I had a friend who had a studio, um, cause at that point equipment was still really expensive. So it was really out of my range um, in terms of like, you know, what I could afford and so on and so forth. So I was I I, I, I like to call myself. I used to um, um, a friend of mine in terms of he's like, you know, I don't like you coming over. He's like, because you're better on my gear than I am. <laughs> yeah, there was no in the box then, right? Uh, you know, no in the box. <laughs> everything was everything was. And I mean, you know this was even before sequencing i mean there was sequencing but a lot of times i wasn't even sequencing because it was you know you're using four tracks and things of that nature so you know you might track a drum beat and then you're just playing everything live you weren't sequencing although they had you know sequencing was around then but i, I didn't start sequencing for probably about um a year or two later got it so you so you go on to college in virginia um and and how did that kind of change you or direct you into music um Virginia was there was a lot going on at that time. That's that that's the city where Allen Iverson's from. So Allen Iverson was there playing basketball. Um, Teddy Riley had relocated down there. Um, a lot of artists came in. You know, it was a college, a big college city. Like I mean, you know, Hampton University was like a prominent. Like a lot of rappers would stop there and perform there and show there. So I met, you know, early on, I met RZA from Wu Tang. I met, um, you know, I met. Fat Joe and Lord Finesse and and um, I didn't know Teddy Riley, but that's actually how I got started. A friend of mine gave a tape of mine to Teddy Riley, and then Teddy Teddy gave me offered me my first deal. 
that was a little later on. I would say before that, just being around there, you know, Diddy was throwing parties down there. I had met Puff, you know, I had met Puff early on. Like, so I knew Puff really early, you know, pre um, Biggie's first record, Puff, not even Biggie's first album, first song, you know, and Craig Mack Puff, you know, so even like, even before that. So you start meeting these people early on and even then you still don't know you know a way in or this and that but you're but you're rubbing elbows with some of these people and i and i think hampton for that hampton was great for i don't know if i love the school shout out to hampton university i, I won't say that on the act the school was great the school was good um i don't think i i don't know if i was ready for school or or <laughs> probably more me than anything i was a finance major but i was so at some point music took over you know, and, um, and, you know, um, shout out to my dad for actually having my back because the studies were taking a second, you know, and, and he said, you know, let's, let's see what happens with this music stuff. You know, he's like, you never know. So um, were your parents I, academics or what were, what was their background? Yeah, definitely. My dad was a history professor. And oh, wow. My stepmother is an attorney and my mother is also in the law field. So very much so. Um, my mother is definitely very creative and artsy, like, you know, open-minded, stepmother is definitely more by the book if you will and then the father was kind of is is kind of by the book but in my case he was like hey you know try it out so he was very supportive um, that's incredible yeah and that helped and that definitely propelled me that definitely put gave me more confidence that you know i know some of those people that just do it parents aren't against them and they or parents are against them and they just do it but in my case they were very good support system that's fantastic. And look, I don't want to go in any kind of chronological order here. I'm just trying to kind of understand your foundation, right, from where you jump from. Um, yeah. And how did you like, the part of this I find like fascinating, you know, and part of it was your ambition. And I think it's part of it was, I don't know, you were young. So I'm going to say some was naivety, right? Uh, but how yeah. did you get into the Hans Zimmer camp? Like, how did that happen early on? Um that was a little bit later. So the good thing about that is when, when I basically showed up on his doorstep or called out of the blue, I already had a Grammy for album of the year, um, for Lauren Hill at that point. So I think that helped. Um, but essentially I had scored a couple of films with no idea of what I was doing. And I just, you know, you know, it's that, that thing, fake it till you make it. So I had a director who approached me, and he had liked some of the music I had done. And he was like, hey, you want you know how to score a film? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, got it. So didn't know what I was doing. Scored a couple of films, loved it. And I showed up on Hans' door. Hans, and um, at the time, he had a partner, business partner named Jay Rifkin. And I showed up at their doorstep. And, you know, um, shout out to Jay and Hans because they took the meeting. You know, um, I wasn't, you know, I didn't have kind of any kind of formal classical training or composer training so i was definitely something you know they hadn't seen before you know what i mean but um and they took me in they welcomed me um i ended up staying there working with hans for about two years um in terms of the way i worked with hans it was a lot of additional production you know i wasn't i wasn't any kind of classic like you know composer but i also they opened me up to the world of um sync and licensing as well so i did a lot of sync i did a lot of spots for tv and commercials and stuff i think i ended up when it was all said and done i might have done over like 2000 pieces of music or something for like, you know, sync. Wow. So, 
So well, yeah, that's a, that's a master class in itself, um, for sure. Oh, so and, 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 and on so many levels, you know, this is the they were you know composers tend to be the composers and maybe EDM producers are probably the more the foremost in terms of like being technologically advanced when it comes to music creation, and um, but composers by far are at the the the, the tip top of that. So. You know, it really furthered my education in terms of working with technology. And, you know, where were we at? We were on the cusp of that, right? Early 2000s. It was like, you know, Pro Tools and, and stuff was taking over. So it was like, it was a great time to be be there and learn so much. Because then I took what I learned there and I brought it to Dr. Dre. So when I moved in with Dr. Dre, I'm the one that kind of like, he had been working sort of in a particular way that he had been working for years. And then I'm the one that sort of brought the computers in the room, if you will. That's awesome. All right, so let's step back. So you win a Grammy um, for the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And I read somewhere where you said it's the miseducation of Che Pope, too. Um, talk, to <laughs> me a, um, talk to me a little bit yeah. about that experience. Well, before, uh, I'll even back up a little bit further that, because um, after Teddy Riley, I moved to New York. Um, I worked with Wyclef. That's that was my that's how I got sort of in into the Fuji world, if you would. This is Wyclef uh, post Fuji album. It was like right after the Fuji album, while he was making the Carnival album. So my first actual placement with my solo production credit is on the Carnival album. Um, I always thank Wyclef because what Teddy preached, which which is the great thing of working with Teddy Riley, I think he's the one who took me from just being like kind of a beat guy or or a groove maker into a song maker because he's the one that really taught me song structure and, and, and really taught me about making a record versus just making a track. Um, we hear that often, like what's the difference between a beat maker and a producer? Teddy Riley is the one who really taught me that. And then Wyclef, because of maybe his heritage and, and his national, you know, that being Haitian, he was already, he had, he had already been really open-minded. Like he knew all sorts of music as well. So now you're talking about a guy who knew, like kind of like myself, who was just aware of, of so much music, you know? And um, he sort of unlocked the creativity and gave me, you know, sort of gave me some freedom there. Um, and any, uh, any little opportunity that came about, I took it as a big opportunity. Like, um, so for, for example, Destiny Child was something that, at the time, this was a group that no one had heard of. And this first single was a ballad. And then we had an opportunity to do a remix. And so I took it as like, well, you let me remix this out of the park, you know? And so every little opportunity, I tried to like hit a home run, you know, that it came. So I thank Wyclef for that. But I also thank Wyclef for teaching me, you know, like you got you to know the music business because he was a little funny with the money. <laughs> um, so that led me to working with Lauren. I'd be, I befriended Lauren and, you know, we start and what, in the beginning, Lauren was very transparent about any business we did. So for instance, if it was something and she didn't want to, you know, and she wanted to keep the publishing, she would talk to me up front, offer me a buyout on the publishing. You know, it was very straightforward. And she'd tell me even the attention behind. It. So, you know, she was trying to establish herself as a producer. You know, she had got a lot of resistance as, you know, being a woman, and trying to you know produce these major records and so on and so forth clive davis was a big supporter of hers so she was trying to establish herself but everything was very transparent initially and then 
um, you know, we make this album, this great album, which, you know, year, year and a half of my life, me and um, me and James Poyser are the primary contributors. There's other guys, Vader and a couple other guys who sued as well. Me and James never sued. That that That's a telling statement right there, just that the two lead contributors don't sue. Mm. Um, maybe we should have sued. I don't know. You know, it, financially, we should have. But um, spiritually, you know, in the place we were at with her and the relationship that we had with her, we, we, you know, we, do, we were just genuine. And we thought it was something that we were going to all, you know, we were just going to figure out. And of course, we, it never got figured out. I mean, to, the, to a testament of time and time healing and so on and so forth, you know, me and Lauren are good to, to, today. You know what I mean? Um, what I did is I didn't take it. A lot of people were like, oh, you know, she took advantage or, or her, her people that she was working with at the time took advantage. And that may be so in terms of bad business, but I always put the blame back on myself because if I had been further educated in the business of music, no one could steal a dime from me. Right. No, that makes sense. Did the other two have any luck? I mean, in this lawsuit, so to speak? Yeah. The other guys, Veda and whoever his, his guys were, I think it was like these two twins that worked with him and one other guy, they did settle for quite a bit of money. So I just know, you know, and, and, and in retrospect, I mean, if I had sued, I would have been the, I would have made the most out of any one person in terms of the contributions wise. So, um, you know, but. So the karma was here. your Grammy, was right? Standing. The karma was huh? the Grammy and the, the karma is that that was just still a legendary piece of music and work. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, my, the testament to it is I'm, I'm still standing, you know, I, you know, no offense to the other guys. I don't know where they're at. I know where James Boyce is at. I yes. know where Chay Pope's at, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe, you know, I, I hope the other guys are doing well too, but you know, I know where Lauren Hill's at. I know where I'm at. I know where James is at. That's fascinating. And so, I mean, that gave you a little taste of working a little bit as a collective kind of thing. I think, think you know, from what I've seen, the Dre thing, when you went to work with Dr. Dre, maybe put you more into a collective setting and um how did well, that change how you worked even even the lauren thing even though we worked i mean no the primarily outside of just outside musicians coming in you know it was me and lauren right or me lauren and james so it really wasn't a big group so i was still that much at that point in time still outside of like you know like i said working with james or you know working with lauren or working with directly with the artist I was still very much kind of a solo duo, either a solo act or a duo. You know what I mean? So I really hadn't done the whole room thing. So the Dre thing was new for me. And it was kind of like, okay, you're piece, you're you're part of the team. And you have to fit in and kind of play your position. And it's tough because I was working with, you know, it was me and Dre. And then you also had a couple of world-class musicians in there, Mark Batson and Mike Elizondo. Mike Elizondo, amazing, you know, world-class bass player, also played guitar and keys. Mark Batson, you know, arguably in a, you know, you know, top 10 piano player, if you will. Like, I mean, the kid was, I mean, you know, classically trained. I mean, his father was an opera, an opera singer, you know. Um, this guy played at the Smithsonian, you know what I mean? So, you know, and that it's all four of us in a room. And then coming in and out would be Scott Storch, you know what I mean? So then you have another really, you know, prodigy coming in and out. So every day you know it was a challenge just every day to you know fit in and and i don't want to say compete because we're part of a team but contribute 
you know, and when you, it's different when you're solo, when you're doing it on your own or you're doing it with you and a partner, then you kind of, it's a lot easier to know your role and your place when you're, when you're fitting into Dre, who's already had this tremendous amount of success. And even though I had all the success as well uh, on my own, it's a, you know, Dre was a different level of success, you know, and, 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 and situation. So, but it was, I loved it. I loved it. You know what I mean? I, I think I grew as a, I learned from Dre. I think I grew as a producer and um, I definitely grew as a producer, but I think I even grew just as a, and my understanding of the music business, you know what I mean? Getting time to spend time with Dre and Jimmy Iovine. And I think my, my, my perception of the music business just broadened and I learned so much more because it was almost like kind of being on the insider's side, you know what I mean? Going from the outside to the inside, you know? Right. And I mean, that was a time with classic records, right? Doing, being done by Dre. I mean, outside of his own work, I mean, you had, what, you have 50 Cent, you had Eminem. Yeah, 50, Eminem, Buster. It was great. And in great times and great, you know, we'd go to record in Hawaii and just great experiences, you know, being in, you know, being in Hawaii, recording with M. And then, you know, then we'd go play basketball together and then we'd hike. So it was out. So it was more than just the studio. You know, you build, you know, the relationships with these guys. You know, Paul M, M's manager is still a good friend of mine. And, you know, guys, you know, these 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 lasting relationships, you know, I still talk to Dre from time to time. You know, he's just and and that was a very pivotal time, I think, in my development as a as a. In, of what I've been barking on now you know, the, the foundation was laid during the Dre years. Interesting. And then, um, so look, what I find interesting about you, cause I looked at, you know, even your credits and, you know, and I kind of did this similarly as an A&R person. Um, you know, you don't, for the period of time that you've been doing this, the credits aren't like overwhelming, you know what I mean? It's not like a hundred, but there's like the small amount of, but they're, incredible cultural touchstones most of them so you have this really there, there high a quite a, there's a quite a few others that are just under aliases yeah but you have a high batting average yeah and i find it way more fascinating when someone's that kind of selective you know yeah. what puts you at the intersection of these geniuses that you're there I, I, there's something fascinating about it to me well i think um two things i think it, you know leap Post Lauren Hill's album, I really wanted to learn the music business inside and out. So I became an executive. I did the A&R, you know, I was an A&R Warner. Um, and I also was the beginning of, of having a family. So I think two things that happened in my life that were pivotal um, and they affected like, you know, the producer, Che. And one was having a family and needing to provide some structure and stability. So, you know, the producer world is volatile. So I balanced the producer world with the producer executive role. And that, I think if I had just stayed just on the producer path, you would have seen that lengthy catalog because I would have done, I was kind of prolific in terms of my output. Um, so you would have seen that massive catalog. And Excuse me. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. Sorry. My dog. Um, I hope so. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I hope so too. Uh, yeah. She's all, the funny thing is she's all bark and no bite. 
she'll she'll go if there was a friggin' break in, she would go up and prevent the friend the you know the robber. So I'll talk. But um, you know, I think that career, just having the, you know making the choice of getting married and having children and needing to provide you know stability factored into my decisions on how I approach my career. So I think that's one of the reasons you see quality over quantity. And and also why I had the kind of the dual role of of producer executive, you know. Right. Talk about going inside. We were both um, trained. I'm a little older than you. Uh, we both got guidance and mentorship from a guy named David Kahn. I did at Columbia Records. You did at Warner. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful for it every day because I'd been I would have been totally lost without his willingness to do that with me as a young kid. Um, yeah. What was it? What did what surprised you about being kind of inside a record company after kind of being outside for the first part of your career? Um, well, first, let me say David is one of my favorite humans. That's actually where I met Paula at as well. We both were brought together and work under david um i think david made the transition for me a lot easier because david was also a producer so he could really speak that language to me and and then i guess i expected the corporate side of it i think i was i i you know just from being in and out of record companies over the years i had a glimpse of you know i had a good feeling for that so there was that and that was that dominated you know kind of what was going on which is you know i think for me that was a little disheartening uh it was it was just great that i worked under a guy named david khan because then that made it better um but it was always you're always dealing with the corporate politics that was going on at the time warner was about to do an aol merger so it was what was going on with the corporation over what was going on with just making great music now, with that said, there were some really great bands that got signed on that side and the rock side. I wish I wish I would have had the opportunity to do it on the urban side as well. But Green Day was signed around then. Lincoln Park was signed around then. Shout out to Jeff Blue, who who found some of these guys. Um, but you know, it was um, it was like guys like Jeff Blue that really stayed true. You know, and that that was once again a testament to David Kahn providing the freedom in the space for someone to be able to do that but i think you know myself and paula we never really got to do what you know what we came to do you know i think paula was too ahead of her time and i think i was also too just you know i was like you know i was uh, i was true to my craft i was a purist you know what i mean i had a grammy you know i had a I, I knew i knew what i was talking about you know at that point so it was, um, and then, so when Tom Wally came in, you know, we all left, um, David left, I left, Paula left. Um, we had an opportunity, you know, we had an opportunity to sort of move past that, that situation and also be compensated for it. So we all took that opportunity. Right. And so listen, yeah, that was kind of a mess for a while over there. Um, yeah. It, 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 these things have gotten to just be multinational corporations, a total of three. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So after that, is that what led you into the Kanye camp at that point? Had you known no, him? Kanye was after Dre. I think, I think after Dre was when I got the entrepreneurial bug hit. So 
I had a friend of mine who was had Matt, who was part of the Campbell Soup family at the time, um, who I pitched an idea to, and he and he really liked it, which which is which the evolution of that is what I'm doing now. But this was the original form of it, which I guess you could say would was just more a more progressive and transparent independent label. That was the the initial iteration of my company workshop, and this was around I think I want to say around 2010, somewhere around then. And then, so we had started this, we had embarked on this. We were about six months into it when he got divorced and his world blew up. And when he got divorced, all, all bets were off. So then I, um, um, oddly enough, this is funny, but the, the story of how me and Kanye came together was not a music story. I had another friend, his name's Nabil Barakat. He's actually, um, when Dre owned a house in West Hollywood, Dre had bought a house in the Bird Streets in West Hollywood. He bought it from this guy, Nabil Barakat. So I went with Dre to look at the house the first time, and that's when I met Nabil. Uh, Nabil, great guy, um, older guy, but really fascinating guy. Originally from, uh, I'm sorry, originally from Jerusalem, but um, like based between L.A., Jordan, and Paris. So just fascinating guy. So I befriended him, and then we started talking about some things. And then um, he was like, you know, if I gave you some money to invest, what, you know, what would you invest in it? And this is why I do know I know my shit. I said I would invest it in Kanye West. I said he's got tremendous influence and his influence is going to be monetized into product. So he, he so Nabil gave me seven million dollars to go, you know, to, to go invest in Kanye. So I go meet with Kanye. I've known Kanye for a while. Um, I knew his manager better at the time. His manager was G. Robeson at the time. And his best friend was Don C. So I knew Don C and G Robeson even better than I knew Kanye, but I knew Kanye a little bit. So they facilitated the meeting. And then I, um, so I met with Kanye, no business plan, no business infrastructure, no nothing. So needless to say, needless to say, um, Nabil was like, no way I'm giving you that money. <laughs> so, um, so then Kanye said to me, well, well, you know, I got this label I need some help with. <laughs> And so that's that's how we started working together. It was literally just that simple. Like I had met with him about investing in in like footwear and in his fashion endeavors. And um and at the time it's funny because I didn't know him well enough to know, you know, if I had it to do again, it's like, no, I needed to invest in the footwear, not necessarily the fashion. Because he lost his shirt in fashion at, in, in the beginning. That's funny. And so that yeah. starts off, you kind of start more in a traditional role, right? Kind of working at the label and yeah. doing A&R. Um, and you grow into COO during that time, right? And help with some of the other deals outside of music? Yeah. I, well, I think I think when you, this is how I've always described my experience with Kanye West. You don't run anything with Kanye West. It's it's just Kanye, you know, moves to the beat of his own drum, as as we all know. I think what you try to do is just, um, you know, I think there is a, there is a plan behind what he does. I think, oh, it's just that only he knows it. Um, so what you try to do is just manage what's manageable. And I think evolving into the role is just out of necessity. It wasn't necessarily any aspiration. I, I didn't even have aspirations of you know, being at good music necessarily, or or for the length of time that I was there, I think the late the length of time when I was there is because as long as I was still fascinated, you know, um, at being a part of it, even though it was you know a roller coaster ride, if you will, um, 
as long as I felt like we were still creating provocative material and, and, you know, you could actually really contribute and be impactful, then I was, you know, willing to be there. And when that sort of, when that sort of stopped, then it was time, time to go. Um, Jay-Z, like <laughs> Jay-Z said to me, you stayed too long at the party. <laughs> How long were you actually involved with Kanye and good music? Yeah, about seven, eight years. I, I started working with Amar on Washington Throne Time 2011, and I left October 2018. It's a long run. Yeah, definitely one of the longer tenured people working with him. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I still love the guy. You know, I think, I think he is a creative genius. I mean, you know, he can be all over the place sometimes, but that's part of his process, you know, and I think um, everybody's got their process. You know, Dre had his process, you know, John Lennon had his process, you know. Right. And what kind of thread have you seen through working with people like this? You know, got people that are literally almost on the genius spectrum, right? If you go from Lauren yeah. to, to even Hans Zimmer to Dre to Kanye. I mean, what do you see there? I mean, is it just boundaryless where are, there's not a one bad idea? Well, I think these people become institutions, right? They, they become more than... I mean, that's a, that's a testament to just great artistry, right? With great talents. They become, they, I don't want to say they're more than human because they are just human, but and, and never lose sight that they're human beings, but they become institutions. They become, and they have to, they have to, they have their own journey to go through and, 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 and not necessarily live up to, but write their story. Right. And, um, sometimes I'm envious of, of, you know, people that can, that can do some of the things they do, you know what I mean? In terms of whether, you know, it's detrimental to their health or their family or, you know what I mean? I think in my case, I, you know, I came from a, um, not to say that these people didn't come from good homes cause they did, but I came from a really solid foundation and they gave me some really solid principles. So certain things, you know, I'm always going to feel like are fundamentally a part of me and, uh, you know, and meaning, I'm not going to sacrifice my family over art where some of these people will, you know, I mean, in, in the terms of being a greatness and achieving their artistry, they've sacrificed that at times, right? They've sacrificed certain things. They've sacrificed, you know, I mean, I mean, Kanye was one of the most hated musicians, right? For saying what he believed about the Taylor Swift thing, you know, whether it was right or wrong, it was still just an artist expressing himself and his opinion just maybe in the wrong way, but he was willing to be villainized for it, you know? Um, we know, you know, um, John Lennon's statements about Vietnam, you know, you know, at that stage in that time in his career, it was like, you know, you're willing to sacrifice, you know, your fame and your fortune for some of these statements and stuff like that. So those artists like that, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, all these outspoken people just need us a moan. I mean, I could go on and on and on and just just amazing. You know what I mean? So but being in the room with the ones that you've been in the room with. I mean, is there just a fearlessness? Is there a, there's no such thing as a bad idea? We don't care about failure. Um, what did you see? Well, all of the above. Cause I mean, I think, I think there is a level of um, even the, the best ones, right? There's a level of insecurity with Drake. And part of the way he gets past his insecurity is, is taking the time and maybe overtaking, you know, maybe even over taking the time to perfect something, right? He, he goes out of his way to try to make sure it's the best it can be. Um, but, but I've seen both. I mean, I've totally seen, you know, 
under the, you know, behind the curtain, if you will. I've seen the vulnerable moments, you know, um, and and then some of the conversations are just special, you know, being in the room with Paul McCartney, being in the room with Santana, being in the room with Aretha, being in the room with, um, you know, Clive Davis, being in the room with, um, you know, Barry Gordy and or having a conversation with Barry Gordy or being in the room with Quincy Jones, you know, they just, you know, being in the room with Prince, you know, these things, you're just, I would say the one just quality that they have, that all of them have to me, is they got an aura. It's like an aura right. around them, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. And however, how, whatever they did to get that aura, they, they had it, you know, or they had it or they stand, or they still have it. The ones that are still here, you know? Right. So are you still, um, we talked a little earlier, are you still doing your podcast? You say you have a Twitch show and uh, a podcast maybe coming back? Yeah. So podcast was called Q&A with Che that has definitely been gone for about a year. Um, I started it in the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, it was actually, no, I'm sorry. I started before the pandemic when we were still doing the stuff in person. I was working out of a podcast studio. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I took it virtual and I, and I didn't like the virtual experience as much as the in, in-person stuff. So I, so I basically suspended the podcast and I was going to wait for everything to come back. Um, Q&A with Che is just that. It was basically, I started lecturing and traveling, doing lectures and stuff. And at the end of the lecture, I would have um, a question and answer session. And initially, the questions would be like, you know, what's up with Kanye and Kim or, you know, all these <laughs> right. sort of fan type questions. But the questions started changing and they started becoming music business questions and industry questions and entertainment. You know, how do I, you know, what type of publishing deal should I do? What does this mean in my publishing deal? Okay, you know, I've signed this contract, you know, so that's why that's what Q&A was born from. So I, I definitely, definitely going to bring that back because I really like the podcast. Um, format and I and I and I just think I feel like I have something to contribute in terms of the inform sharing of the information because to me information is power and a lot of people ask me um, even today somebody just hit me um, on Instagram I was like how do I get in the business and I said you know make make really make really good shit and network you know but I I feel like I have something to contribute in that information space so, and I and, and I know a lot of people who I know have great you know, have, have, they have a lot of information that they could share. Absolutely. What is um, coming up next for you? What's your new huge project? My new project is a company called Workshop. I am the CEO and founder. It's definitely probably the most um, difficult undertaking of my career, my life, it's, which is being an entrepreneur. Um Although I was a finance major, I, I can't say I have been an entrepreneur. I started down that path in you know 2010 and didn't get far on it. But this was different. You know, this was going out and fundraising. And um, my lead investor is Dan Gilbert, amazing, amazing individual, amazing family, and amazing org organization. But you know, it's work. They, you know, you don't. Nothing is handed to you. You have to go out there and really get it. I've I've met, you know, I've met so many amazing uh, individuals who've had all types of success in terms of meeting with investors and VCs and different companies. And it's, and just fundraising and building a company and an organization is just a different, you know, it's, it's a different muscle than just, you know, going in the studio and making a song. And some people are built for it. I understand why people have certain people have so much success and, and why they have uh, multiple companies and they've been able to do it. They have the knack for that. 
I don't think, I don't think I have, you know, that, that was my God, you, you know, my born talent. So I think it's been something I've, I've learned and studied. And, you know, we've got this company, it's called Workshop. The, the simple definition of it would be a music-based lifestyle company. And, and my definition of it, I like to say, is what a music company should be in 2022. Um, music is influential, as we know, and far beyond just music. It's influential in what clothes people wear and what products people buy. You know, you can look at the success of Beats by Dre and, and Yeezy sneakers and, and many more examples of that. So, you know, that's why it's necessary to build a company that's a lifestyle brand. And um, that's what Workshop is. And we're going to be headquartered in Detroit which I'm very proud of. I'm originally from Boston. A lot of people say, why Detroit? Why not Detroit? Um, I feel like LA and New York and even Atlanta and Miami are oversaturated. Um, I like the fact that, you know, like places like Nashville and Austin exist and, and they build these music communities. Detroit was orig the original, you know, music city. So kind of, you know, where people have always been leaving the city. I like the idea of coming back to a city. Um, Dan is, um, really invested in the arts and the, in the community of Detroit. So to be a kind of part of that is, is, was, was special to me. Right. Well, here comes another guy into your life who, you know, and to put in context who Dan Gilbert is for listeners, uh, he founded Quicken Loans. He owns the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, and he kind of was a spark, I think, in Detroit for some of its revitalization. Is that fair to say? That is very fair to say. He's the very passionate you know, um, born, born and born and raised in Detroit guy, extremely passionate. Um, and you know, it's just, you know, to, to meet you, like you said, just to meet these, you know, these people, these type of people in, in your, in your travels is just, you know, part of my journey, you know? Well, congratulations. I know, um, you know, how difficult that would be, um, to kind of create an idea that someone like that would take an interest in. So you're doing something right here. Your instincts are right. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and I know it's, you know, a music, you know, any kind of startup that has a music component of it just is more is a challenging, you know, startup. Um, so, you know, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but, um, but, um, you know, it's, I think work ethic has never been my problem, you know? Um, so I'm excited and it's, I feel I'm, you know, I feel like everything I've done in my career at this point prepared me for this, you know? Um, I think time, I think everything happens when it's supposed to happen. Um, I'm a firm believer in that, you know, but I'm also a firm believer in manifestation too. You know, you have to, you know, you have to put it out there and then you have to go, you know, achieve it, you know? Right. I agree. I agree. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to seeing what workshop, um, builds and pushes <laughs> out there for the artist community. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> and I'm really grateful for your time. Um, You've done some incredible work throughout your history, and it was nice to spend some time with you. So, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, Jay. I feel like the best is ahead. I agree with you. So, hopefully, one day we'll be able to do this stuff in person. I agree with you. This over the Zoom thing's awfully tiring. So, yeah. Uh, all right, mate. Stay, stay healthy. You too. All right. Thanks, Jay. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpod.com for updates and even some merchandise. 
Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.